Well, friends, we have a big topic today. Uh, some of you know what it is. Some of you uh, read the All Church email and you clicked on the link and you kind of followed things along. Some of you would have seen it on my social media at some point yesterday. Some of you saw the topic and you immediately thought, run, he's going to talk about divorce, run before we get convicted. And some of, the, some of you are like a little bit nervous about where this conversation is, uh, is going to go. Uh, and I would just say if you're, you're married or you're single or you're divorced or you're remarried or, you know, you're widowed, whatever your situation, I just want to say it is not a mistake that you're watching today or you're listening today. It's not a mistake that you chose to tune in on this day of all days where we're talking about this. And it's because we live in a world that's infused with resurrection potential. It's because the Holy Spirit is at work in our world, always creatively, uh, like, like out retrofitting things to be used for the glory of God. It's not a mistake that you're here. Jesus has something for you. And so I just want to encourage you, despite any anxiety you may be feeling, to just take a deep breath and to relax in God's presence and be confident that he knows you and your story and he's got something for you. So I bet there are some people who uh, learned that we were talking about divorce and maybe chose not to turn in today, or maybe there are those people who, like, you're watching right now, and this is the first time you're learning that this is our topic, and you're like, I am not emotionally ready for this, and so you've already clicked out of our video, and you're watching cat videos on YouTube or something like that, and you're going to come back and listen to this later when you've had some time to emotionally budget. Maybe you've got a glass of wine in hand. If that's you, cheers to you. Um... But this is a really sensitive topic. And I've preached on sensitive topics in the past. Some of you will remember my sermon uh, February of 2019 where we talked about homosexuality in the church. One of the most controversial, sensitive topics uh, we could take on. And you know that our church wants to have difficult conversations, not with the goal of being provocative or like shocking for, for shock's sake, but it's always in the interest of being well. We have difficult conversations always in the interest of being healthy and well in Christ. This topic, perhaps even more than some of the other controversial ones or sensitive ones that we could name, requires some real tenderness. This topic hits really close to home for all of us. One that really requires a wise heart and a gentle spirit, something that I've been earnestly asking God for in preparing uh, this message. And many people, and I would probably say most people in our church, have been directly impacted by divorce uh, uh, one way or another. Maybe you're listening or you're watching and, and you've been through divorce. Or maybe you've been through divorce um, a couple of times. And you have those wounds that go really deep, maybe even deeper than you realize. You'll always remember words and tones of voice and facial expressions and moments in your life where that thing happened and like your heart feels scarred in some ways from what happened. And you may be listening and you thought that you were good with everything that happened, but even now just like naming it and deliberately bringing up this topic is drumming up all of those things again in your own heart and you're feeling a bit apprehensive. I, I would say for many people in our church, uh, no matter your age, you're, uh, you may have remember what it was like when your parents got a divorce. And you mark time in telling your own story before divorce and after divorce. 
And it doesn't matter if you are a baby or a teenager or even uh, an adult. The severing of that marital tie had a profound effect on you. And the people, your mom and dad, who were meant to be as steady as the sun and the moon, separated and it, it destabilized your entire universe. Uh, maybe you're listening and you think not a family, but you think of really good friends. You have friends who divorced, and, and as a result of that divorce, you and your friend group had to decide, like, who gets the church? Who gets the annual party, the annual trip, the, the friend group? And social media tends to kind of exacerbate these conversations because you can kind of know what's going on in the lives of many people if they're active on social media, uh, even when it would be helpful to have a little bit of distance. If I'm, if I'm entirely honest in all candor, as I was prepping and like plugging in weeks, knowing that I was going to preach all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, there's a part of me that genuinely thought, I should skip this week and just see if anybody notices, because it would be way easier not to prep this sermon and not to get whatever emails may come on the back side of it. It'd be way easier uh, to just skip it. But the thing about how we've approached preaching and teaching uh, for the last couple of years uh, is that in letting Scripture set the agenda uh, for us, like drive our topics, I'm thinking about last year we did the year of the Bible and just read through the Bible systematically, and this year uh, with, uh, for eight months on the Sermon on the Mount. This is called expository uh, preaching. The thing is that in letting Scripture drive the agenda, define the topics for us, we've made this implicit ask for the Holy Spirit to, like, guide the conversations where they need to go. We've said, Lord, you know better than any one of us what we most need to hear. And so come, Lord, teach us, rebuke us, correct us, train us, heal us, help us to be well. However you are, whatever, in whatever way you see fit. And because of this act of surrender, we believe uh, that like, like God is at work in the middle of this, that God is sovereign, and it's not a mistake that we're having this conversation now. And this is consistent with our mission as a church. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things, and that all things includes our marriages, includes our divorces, learning to be gospel-shaped in our thinking and our living in these areas. And it's also consistent with our theme for this year of maturity. I think of Colossians 1. He is the one we proclaim, teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. So I will just say, I believe that the Lord has guided us, and I believe that the Lord has guided you to this moment. But I'll warn you now that, that Jesus' words on this topic for many people can feel unsettling. They make you, make you uncomfortable. They may make you restless just even in anticipation of hearing them. But because Jesus is the Son of God, we know that these words uh, will be true. And truth is our friend. Truth sets us free if we'll let it. And because Jesus is the Son of God, we know that these words are also going to be accompanied by grace because Jesus is the one who died on the cross for our sins. His words are going to come with grace, and because there's grace, there's hope for all of us. So today we're not going to shy away, and we're not going to run away in fear or in cowardice or shame. We're going to boldly and humbly approach the throne of grace, knowing that we have in Jesus a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weakness. He gets it. 
our ambition in the next couple of minutes is going to be to prayerfully listen to and consider what the Scriptures have to say, not only about divorce, but about uh, marriage in general, to deal with this topic with a spirit of maturity, not rushing to justify ourselves or explain ourselves or defend ourselves, and keeping at bay a spirit of judgment or shaming, not judging or shaming ourselves or other people for that matter, and proceeding into this vulnerable territory with peaceful hearts and and with our guards down, knowing that Jesus, our teacher, is humble and gentle in spirit. And to the degree to which we order our lives around his presence and his person and his words, we're going to find rest for our souls. So we're going to begin by looking at this original text in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 31 and 32. And then we're going to jump back to the Old Testament, jump back to the New Testament. We're going to be a bit all over the place. And after like looking at, at various scriptures, our goal is that we will have gathered a biblical orientation to like what is marriage and divorce. And after we've looked at various passages of scripture and, and named some principles, we're going to ask the simple question, What on earth do we do with all of this? How do we live in reality as a result of all of this? So, uh, the teaching text is Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. That's what it says. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now, pay attention already if you've been listening to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus presents the prevailing logic that others are talking about, and then he offers his own counterpoint or or, uh, extension of this revelation. It has been said, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, that's, that's the text. These are the two verses in the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus on the topic of divorce. Now, I want you to note that when Jesus says, it has been said, he's quoting people who are attempting to quote Deuteronomy, the, the, the law given through Moses in Deuteronomy. But it's not a completely accurate quote. It's like the people singing to the radio. They know like pretty much the words, but it's not exact. So if we go back to the original source, uh, we find this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Moses and the people of Israel are on the verge of entering the promised land. And there, on the verge of entering the promised land, Moses is repeating to God's people God's law. The law that will make them a peculiar people among the nations. The law that if they follow it, they'll be a kind of salt and light on the earth. Like foreshadowing the church that was to come. Uh, they say, if you live in this way, you're going to stand out in the best kind of way for the kingdom. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. It says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds, and this is the important phrase, something indecent about her, you might underline that, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Really encouraging passage of Scripture, right? 
Now, there's a ton that I could comment on in trying to make sense of this passage in uh, Deuteronomy. But the thing that I want you to, to note is this is the passage in the Mosaic Law that gave people a kind of textual precedent for divorce. Like, this is the passage when people went to justify their divorces. They said, well, yeah, Moses said, and they're going back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. A man writes a certificate of divorce, he gives it to his wife, and he sends her away. The word used for divorce here uh, connotes the sending away, which is essentially what we see in the story of Abraham and Sarah sending away the, the maidservant Hagar. Hagar had given birth by Abraham to Ishmael. Sarah became displeased and said, kick out this slave woman. And so Abraham sends her away. And when Hagar is out in the wilderness with her son Ishmael on the point of death, the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, I see you, Hagar. I care about you. I've still got plans for you and for your child. And Hagar, the first to name God in all of the Bible, said, Surely you are the God who sees me. And I think for the divorced woman or for the divorced man or for the child of divorce, I would just reiterate to you that God sees you. And he notices you. He's not cast you off from his presence, but wants to be a God who's near to you. Now, one of the things that's the most controversial about this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 4 is there's the phrase, that one that I told you to underline, that's a little bit difficult to interpret. It's, it's a bit ambiguous. Uh, it, we're trying to figure out what does this phrase, something indecent, mean? When, when Moses says, if he finds something indecent about her. Now, this Hebrew phase is a little bit ambiguous, um, very woodenly translated. It means the nakedness of a thing. The nakedness of a thing. And there, there ended up to be two schools of interpretation and in understanding what this phrase meant, rep represented by the rabbis Hillel and Shammai. Hillel's interpretation focused on the word nakedness in that phrase, the nakedness of a thing, focused on nakedness and suggested that that means infidelity or unchastity. A person had uh, an affair, was, was unfaithful in the marriage. Shammai's interpretation, on the other hand, focused on the thing in that phrase, uh, suggesting that it really just meant anything, that if anything was displeasing about a man, about a woman to a man, he could send her away. Anything, and I quote, even burning a dish. It was within his authority to send his wife away and divorce her. Two very different definitions of the same phrase. And while if we were to look at Deuteronomy 24 as a whole, we'd find numerous troubling dynamics in the passage, especially as 21st century Westerners, the interpretation of this phrase in particular, uh, it's, it would seem to me to be the really important thing. Because we're looking here for some kind of like scriptural green light for when divorce is justified. Is infidelity sufficient grounds for divorce, as Hillel would argue? Or is a man empowered to send his wife away for any and every reason, even like burning a dish, as Shammai would argue? The text does seem to presuppose that divorce is going to happen, but what on earth do we do with it? Well, as it turns out, these two schools of thought of Hillel and Shammai uh, endured until the time of Jesus. And it just so happened that the Pharisees, wanting to trap Jesus, came to him and presented this 
question, which we're going to read in just a minute, and, and wanted to get his interpretation. Now, uh, this, like many other topics, is one that was very controversial. And the Pharisees, most of all, were not get, trying to get an honest answer from Jesus, but they were trying to get him in a shouting match, trying to make him look bad in the process, challenging him to pick sides in a never-ending either-or battle. It's like the never-ending discussion about guns in our country. Is it gun control that's most needed, or is it a mental health response that's most needed? Among uh, certain groups of Christians, you have this never-ending conversation about predestination and free will. And then there's the conversations about mullets and mutton chops, which is better. We're never going to decide. We're never going to land on somewhere peaceful for everybody on that one. It's just too difficult of a question. That's called levity in that moment. But more than anything, the Pharisees in this moment uh, wanted to get Jesus to contradict Moses so they could have grounds for accusing him publicly. This is the conversation that happened in Matthew 19, beginning at verse 3. Said so some Pharisees came to him, to Jesus, to test him. And they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Which obviously, like this represents Shammai's interpretation. I want you to note how Jesus responded. He says, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said to them, uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then note this. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When asked about divorce, Jesus starts not with the presupposition that divorce is normal and we should all just get used to it, that this is just like one of those things in life that we should all come to accept? No. He starts with the creational intent and design of God for marriage. That in marriage, and biblically, I think we could say just in sex in general, uh, what were two separate individuals become in the eyes of God a new and indivisible one. If you note the last verse that Jesus quoted from Genesis 2, it said, what God has joined together. In, in marriage, God like, defies the laws of mathematics, mathematics and says that one plus one in marriage and in sex does not equal two, it equals one. What God has joined together. Which tells us that when we're standing in a, in a chapel or, or a wedding venue of some kind and a pastor says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, there's a deeper voice and a voice of a higher level of authority that's echoing above the voice of the pastor saying, God is doing something here. There's divine action, not just human action. That marriage is not just a ceremony and a piece of paper and a vacation, but it's like a divine act where one plus one so the, the divine activity of God equals one. Rather than taking a permissive or an accommodating stance toward divorce, which Deuteronomy seems to take as a given, and rather than trying to rush to pick sides in this Hillel versus Shammai argument, Jesus reframes the question. He blows the question to smithereens by going to the pre-fall creational intent of God. 
in reminding people of God's vision for normal in marriage, which is enduring, indivisible unity for life, where two become one. Have you ever been in a work environment which, like, you hate your job? It's not going great, but it's like it's business as usual for you. And you go out and grab a cup of coffee or a drink with a friend, and you're describing your work situation, and they're like, that is not normal. What you're describing is like toxic or abusive or really, really bad. And you realize with the contrast of that other person's personality, you're like, oh, I've been justifying something that was really, really bad. It has come to be normal to me, but this is not okay. This is not good, and this is not big picture normal. I just couldn't see it on my own. We are very used to divorce. Uh, if we asked for a show of hands of people who've been divorced, your parents were divorced, you have friends who are divorced, everyone could raise their hands. We are used to divorce. Uh, if, you, if you go to the Tulsa world every single day, you're going to see the names, uh, probably without exception, every day of the year, of couples who have filed for divorce. But Jesus reminds us that this was not God's vision for normal. Uh, God's vision is oneness. I think Andy Stanley has some really great teaching about this, and, and Stanley said, oneness is the result of marriage, not just the goal of marriage. Oneness is the result of marriage. One plus one equals one, not just the goal of marriage. Therefore, he says, don't attempt to un-one what God has made one. I think it's reasonable to ask the question, is it even fully possible to un-one what God has made one? If I had an empty beaker here and poured in some red liquid and some yellow liquid, we would have an orange liquid here. Is it even possible to separate those primary colors out again? Don't attempt to un-one what God has made one. Now, some of you got divorced, and you found, like, tremendous freedom in that divorce. Like, oh, thank God, I'm away from him, or I'm away from her. We can breathe normally again, but a couple years down the road, you find that they're actually still a pretty big part of your life. You might not have seen them. You might not have talked to them. You may have even gotten remarried and moved on to someone else, but you find that that person still has a presence in your life. The marriage went away on paper, but remnants of it can't help but remain. Oneness is the result of marriage, not just the goal of marriage. Therefore, don't attempt to unone what God has won. Well, if you're paying attention like the logical flow here, there's a natural follow-up question, and the Pharisees go ahead and ask it for us. Verse 7 of Matthew 19. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And I want you to note Jesus' response in, in the next verse. He says, no, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. He says Moses permitted divorce, but he did not bless divorce. He conceded to the reality that human hearts were hard, and so he permitted men to issue this certificate of divorce. Why? I think one of the chief reasons was to protect women. 
It proves the woman wasn't sleeping around. She hadn't had a failure. She was sent away, and therefore she could go back to her father or to her brothers or to her grandfather and say, my husband sent me back to you. Please receive me. Moses was giving this certificate to protect women, something that the husband had failed to do here. And Jesus said this sending away, this dissolution of marriage is a sin. It's wrong. Okay, so we've heard from uh, Jesus and Matthew in two places. We've heard from Deuteronomy. We're going to go to two more passages of Scripture. Uh, This first from Malachi. Malachi uh, chapter 2, God says through the prophet Malachi, listen, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why? It's because the Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is God's pre-fall vision for creation. So be on your guard, says Malachi, and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one that he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. Now, you may have noticed in this passage and in other, other passages that the text always assumes that the man is the one initiating divorce. And this is a patriarchal society where, generally speaking, the man is almost always going to be the only one empowered to take this initiative. But in my opinion, uh, this, this text would equally indict a man who puts his wife in a position where she must initiate divorce to protect herself or her children from physical or emotional or spiritual abuse or violence. There's still responsibility there. How does God feel about this situation where a man would send away his wife? The NRSV captures verse 16 of Malachi 2 like this, where God just says simply, I hate divorce. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. God says, I hate when a relationship that was meant to be characterized by enduring, indivisible unity for life is severed because it does violence to God's world. It does violence to human hearts. And God says, I hate this. And if you were to think about divorce through like a holistic Old Testament framework, I think what God hates the most about divorce is what grieved God about the fall in the first place. That God's creational intent was a world in which humans thrived in interdependent and completely vulnerable relationships where they could be naked without any shame and co-rule the world together with God forever. But Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden was a kind of divine human Divorce that had violent consequences in God's world. Adam and Eve are suddenly blaming each other. They're blaming the serpent. They're hiding from God. There's consequent frustration in their work. One of their sons ends up killing another. And the severing of these ties proves to be a kind of uncreation or an anti-creative work. Whereas God has a vision of this world that is teeming with life, the divine human divorce puts that life under threat. Whereas God wanted a world that was multiplying, men, humanity brought division on the world, and God rightly says to humankind's uncreative work, 
I hate this. And do you know who else hates divorce? People who have walked through divorce. Now, there can absolutely be real relief when you get out of a toxic situation or a violent situation. If a person is suddenly protected from abuse or toxicity or danger, absolutely there's relief. And I would just say, if you're a person who's in an abusive situation, please and without shame, reach out for help. But God hates this. And in fact, we would resent a God that was okay with these situations. We would resent a God who is indifferent to destructive and harmful realities. God hates this, and those who have walked through this hate this too. A person who's been through it would absolutely say, I hate that you put me in a position where I had to choose. I I hate that the one that was meant to protect me has caused me harm and violence. I hate that we're fighting. I hate the awkwardness. I hate the consequences. I hate the implications for our children. I hate having to figure out how we're going to do all these family gatherings. I hate it. The people who've walked through it most intimately and know the pain with God hate divorce. There may be relief, but for those who've walked through it know that they have to bear consequences on their soul and their finances and on their peripheral relationships, on their future relationships, so they could say with God, yeah, I hate this. And they could affirm with God, yeah, this is not how it was meant to be. I want to look at one last text. You guys are being so patient. Thank you for hanging with me. I want to look at one last text from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and then we're going to look at, like, what do we do with all of this? 1 Corinthians 7, uh, the context here is the church in Corinth has written to Paul, and there's a certain group of people who are advocating that nobody should be having sex at all. And so what this first verse is Paul quoting the Corinthians. It says, now for the matters that you wrote about, and he's quoting them here, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And now Paul is addressing that. He says, but such, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. If you're married, the Bible is encouraging you to have sex, okay? You're all welcome. That's my gift to you. The Bible is encouraging this. Uh, Verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And the chauvinists are all really excited. But then it says in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, uh, but yields it to his wife. It says, do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. In other words, you should regularly connect as husband and wife in that way. And then come back together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul here gives gives us another qualifier that we could add to a description of biblical marriage. Enduring indivisible unity and mutual submission for life. And then he goes on after describing some positives about marriage to, to addressing divorce in verse 10. He says, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. 
Paul does not say, uh, I give you this suggestion for you to think about if you have time and get to it. He says, I give you this command, not I, but the Lord. Don't separate, but if you do, don't remarry. Why? Because you can't un-one what God has made one. Okay, some of you are probably worn out. You're like, oh, I'm beat up after all of that. We've looked at uh, Matthew. We've looked at Deuteronomy. We've looked at Malachi. We've looked at, uh, listened to Paul in the first letter to the Corinthians. And we could probably look at other passages, but we'd find the same resonant messages. If you come to the Bible looking for a permissive attitude toward divorce, you're going to be disappointed. If, if you come to the Bible trying to find like a secret code, a secret loophole that you can use to make it like blessed and good and okay, uh, you're going to be disappointed. It's not there. But what do we find? This is kind of a summary of some of the principles we find. We find that oneness is the result of marriage, not just the goal of marriage. That in marrying a person in the eyes of God, you are no longer two, but one. may not be a healthy one, may not be a thriving one, but one nonetheless. Therefore, don't un-one what God has made one. And for that reason, in a way, in a way that's like very, very shocking to modern sensibilities, the Bible says that remarriage after divorce constitutes adultery. And we're like, yeah, Jesus, you're, you're confused. Bible, you're confused. That doesn't make sense. If you divorce someone and then you marry someone else, it's not adultery because you're not married anymore. It's only adultery if you're married. But the Bible would say a paper doesn't say you're divorced. You can't unone what God has made one. God, that the divine activity of God in marriage and in sexuality makes what was two into an indivisible one. Jesus, as we look for some kind of relief in Matthew's gospel, affirms God's creational plans for marriage. And really, it's what he does in all of the Sermon on the Mount, if you're going to pay attention to the whole thing. He's saying, here's what your life would look like if you were fully mature, fully realized, fully arrived in your walk with God. You would turn the other cheek. You'd pray for your enemies. You'd avoid anger. You'd avoid lust. You'd do the right things in the right way for the right reasons. And for those of you who are married, you would stay in a state of enduring, indivisible unity and mutual submission with one purpose for all of your life. And lest we think we are, we're understanding him too harshly or more harshly than he intends, consider the response of his disciples in Matthew 19 to this teaching. In verse 10 of Matthew 19, he said, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. He said, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus doesn't walk back his statements. He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 you've totally misunderstood me. He doesn't cower. He doesn't soften. Were divorced people listening? Of course. Were people offended then as they are now? Of course. But he simply responds. This is verse 11 of Matthew 19. He says, not everyone can accept this word. They said, Jesus, if this is the situation, then nobody should be getting married. And Jesus is like, yeah, it's a big deal. And then he moves on. And we're left with the uncomfortable reality afterward. Okay, some of you are listening 
and you are worn out. And it's not just because you're watching a sermon online and like the screens are fatiguing. You're worn out because you feel like you just got the tar beat out of you. You feel like, like the Bible is deliberately trying to like shame and condemn divorced people. It's like, why would you kick a guy or a gal when they're already down? You don't know my situation. You don't know everything that I went through. Divorced people may be feeling like, gosh, you're just beating me up. This isn't fair. And I hear you on that. But I want, I want you to pay attention to this. That if you read the Gospels, and I encourage you to read the Gospels, if you pay attention to the person and the mannerisms and the sensibilities and the habits of the person of Jesus Christ, you don't find a guy going around rubbing people's faces in their failures. You don't find a guy who delights in shaming people when they blow it. Isaiah prophesied about Jesus that a bruised reed he would not break. He didn't come just to beat up all of us who are failures. Jesus said plainly in, in John chapter 3, he said, I have not come to condemn the world. I have come to save the world. When Jesus was presented with a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, he said, oh yeah, all y'all who are holding your stones and reared back, the one who is without sin, you throw the first stone. And Jesus, the only one in the crowd who could throw the stone if he wanted to because he was without sin, didn't even pick it up. And he said to the woman, woman, where are your accusers? said, they're gone. He said, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. He said, what you did was wrong. It was sin. I don't condemn you. And don't do that anymore. In Jesus, there's both grace and truth. And it's not 50-50. It's one of those amazing divine mathematics of God where he's full of grace and full of truth. One does not push out the other. Jesus brought us truth about our sin and grace that is greater than all of our sin. So what is the truth about what the Bible teaches us about marriage and divorce? As we've said, oneness is the result of marriage, not the goal. In marriage, divine math happens so that one plus one equals one. God's design for marriage is that it would be characterized by an enduring, indivisible unity and mutual submission for life. In a fallen world, divorce happens, and God hates it. Because you can't unone what God has made one, and therefore, remarriage after divorce constitutes adultery. So we ask the so what questions. Okay, so okay, what, what do you want me to do with all of this? I remarried. Am I living in a perpetual state of adultery? Is that what you're saying? Should I get divorced? Uh, like, well, well, those of you who are in your second marriage are like, he's giving us an out. I'm not doing that. Don't you put that on me. One, some of you may wonder, like, where do we stand with the church in view of all of this? And I would just say, if Jesus doesn't condemn you, then we don't condemn you either. In fact, you'll find that we are all broken. you find that we are all sinners. We all need the mercy of God. If you pay attention to the Sermon on the Mount, we're all a bunch of adulterers anyway because Jesus said anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We're all in the same boat together. We may not all have divorced, but we have all sinned, and none of us have the moral high ground here. So you're divorced, you're remarried, you want to be divorced, you want to be remarried, where do we go from here? 
I want to end with, with giving three simple but not simplistic steps. And on this, I'm inspired by Andy Stanley. Three steps in response to all of this. The first is to embrace God's reality. To embrace God's reality. What do I mean by this? I mean, for those of you who have walked down this road, maybe you've been divorced, maybe you've been remarried, maybe you're engaged to be married and you're like getting some new definitions for what marriage is. The first step in embracing God's reality is just to tell the Lord, I accept that what you say about marriage is true. I accept that you are right because you designed it. You can't un-one what God has made one. I don't like it. I wish it weren't so. It really complicates my life to admit it, but I just want to tell you, God, I accept that you're right. That if anyone has the moral high ground on this, it's you who invented all things in marriage in the first place. Just tell him he's right, and in the core of your being, accept it. There's freedom in accepting the truth. There's freedom in living in reality. And there are realities that we really don't like, but we do have to deal with. Some of you know what it's like to get a cancer diagnosis. And that is a very unwelcome reality. But the sooner you welcome reality and put together a plan, the sooner you are on the road toward God willing healing. Some of you know what it's like to lose a job, and it stinks to lose your job. But the sooner you accept reality, the sooner you can thrive in that reality. Now, you wish it weren't true. You don't want to deal with what follows. But the sooner you accept reality, the sooner you can begin to address it. To, to embrace God's reality is to say, Jesus, you are right about marriage. With all of the gray areas and all of the complexities and all of the ambiguities, I accept and embrace that you are right about this. Some of you may be engaged and you have too casual an attitude about getting married. Uh, you, you like see all of your friends get married and it's just kind of the natural step in your relationship and you're not prepared for the oneness and the divine activity that comes with that. I challenge you, don't walk down that aisle until you have accepted God's reality, embraced God's reality of what marriage is. It's not a ceremony and a piece of paper and a vacation. It's so much more. There's divine activity. Step one for all of us is to embrace God's reality. Step two, I would say, is to confess your reality. Now, for those of you who've, who've been divorced, uh, perhaps who've been unfaithful, uh, those who've, who've remarried, uh, confessing your reality means like telling the truth about yourself and your situation to God. And just owning, God, I have broken your law. You said that this was true, and I just ignored it. Or maybe there, some of you would say, like, like I didn't even know it. I, I, was, I was ignorant. I was in the dark about this. I didn't know better. But I think there are probably some listening who you'd say you didn't know better, but you did. You knew after your divorce you were rushing into that relationship. You knew you were hurrying off when you should be settling in and letting the Lord heal you. Your friends advised you against it. Your conscience advised you against it. And you just did it anyway. To confess your reality is to own, God, I did stuff you said I shouldn't do. I haven't lived up to your teachings. I've, I've, I've sinned. Tell the truth about yourself and confess it to God. 
This is like the basics of Christianity in some ways, that we admit that we're broken, that we're sinful, and we need a Savior. And God is delighted to pour out His mercy on us as we begin to live in reality, seeing ourselves as we are and God as He is. 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confess to Him. Maybe you haven't received that forgiveness and that purification because, like, you've just never confessed. You've been too proud or you've been too scared. Maybe you've been remarried for a good number of years and you feel like, like maybe you haven't even told your spouse this, but a dark cloud just kind of follows you wherever you go. There's something that perhaps makes you feel like held back and fully like, like giving yourself to your spouse. Could it be that you've never owned I wasn't supposed to get remarried. Just tell the truth. Tell the truth and don't despair. And it leads us to, to the third step. The first is to embrace God's reality. The second is to confess your reality. The third is to ask for a renewed reality. The Bible is chock full, not of superheroes, but of super failures of people who have bombed it royally. By the way, not just the Bible, but also our church and our pastor. Like, we're, we've all blown it spectacularly. In the Bible, we find murderers and adulterers and liars and deniers and sinners. And if their sin forever defined their reality, they would have all given up. And if sin forever defined our reality, we should all despair, give in to despair. But what made the difference for them and what makes the difference for us? It's the mercy and the kindness and the grace of God extended to us in Jesus Christ who takes messed up people in messed up situations and works to redeem and restore and renew and resurrect what's dead. It's the hope of Easter. And some of you know the pain of divorce. I, I, I know there are people who not only like, like your own divorce hurts you, but your parents' divorce hurts you. Your friend's divorce hurts you. Like you know that pain intimately. Now some, some folks may have gotten remarried. In embracing God's reality and confessing your reality, I encourage you to ask God to give you a renewed reality. For grace to heal and to move forward in wisdom, to fill in the gaps to make up for what's lost, to wash you and bathe you in his mercy and sustain you. Can God redeem a second marriage? Absolutely. Is there a hope for a person who's had a divorce or had an affair or gotten remarried? Absolutely. God can do abundantly more than all we can ask or imagine. No one is hopeless. Now some people here are divorced and you're currently single, and you're thinking, dang it, I should have gotten married before this sermon because now John knows that I know. Uh, maybe if, if you asked me for advice, and you came to me for advice and said, John, like, what would the Bible advise me to do as a divorced person? I would say this. I would say that the message of the Bible is unmistakable and consistent. I would encourage you to ask God to give you the grace uh, to be content and to stay single to embrace all of, of the healing and the learning and the renewing that can happen. 
to ask God to give you the grace to just make space in your heart to recover from the trauma and the violence of divorce, if you ask for my, like, biblical advice, I would say, if you can, stay single. But I also say this. Jesus says, this is a hard teaching and not all can accept it. And we live in a reality where, like, it, it's, it's difficult in many ways to be a single person. It's also difficult in many ways to be a married person. All of life is difficult. All of life comes with challenges. Uh, you may say, I can't stay single. If that's your reality, and you say, this is not a teaching I, could set, I can accept, I would say this to you. Don't rush the process. If you are, are, have gotten divorced, don't start dating anytime soon. Uh, I would encourage you, take three years, take four years, take five years, take even more years than that. Don't rush into it. Learn to be content unmarried. Ask God in this season to just give you His grace to sustain you, to strengthen you, uh, to, to expand your hope, to, to expand your sense of contentment, to heal you, to reveal stuff in you that even before your divorce you'd never surrendered. And if and when you choose to get remarried, it won't be as a rebound, and it won't be because you're running away from something, but because you're as ready as you can be to choose that for yourself. It's good to embrace God's reality. It is ultimately for our good, though painful, to confess our reality. And God, who's full of mercy, is so ready to give us a renewed reality, to turn ugly things into beautiful things, to redeem, to renew, to resurrect. There's hope for every one of us. I want us to zoom out the lens just in these last moments and consider not just your situation or the situation of your friends, but, but to put this conversation in the context of the church. That we have a responsibility and a duty and a chance to love one another in community. To uphold one another, both in singleness and in marriage. To be like a, a steady presence, an anchor for each other, divorced or single, widowed, married in all situations of life. And there's an opportunity for us as a church as we learn to embrace the teachings of Jesus, even the ones that are unsettling and even the ones that challenge us. Invite him by aligning ourselves with truth to make us well as we live in his reality. And in learning to do the Jesus stuff in community to shine brightly in a city that knows brokenness more than it knows wholeness. A city that knows like the destruction of relationships and has yet to see the beauty of their reconstruction. With God, all things are possible. May God give us the grace, not just as individuals, but as a community to be full of faith that what he says is right and for our good. He might, we might give us the gift of faith to believe that God wants to do a work of renewal and resurrection in us. You, you may need to go through the pain of Good Friday and Holy Saturday and name with sorrow your own failures or the failures of your parents, but know that on the other side of Holy Saturday there is Easter Sunday and God is working in all situations for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose. Will you trust and accept and embrace this reality? God loves you. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, this is a hard teaching, and who can accept it? In some ways, it doesn't feel sensible. In some ways, it doesn't feel fair. Perhaps it doesn't feel possible in our world. And yet we, your people, confess that you are the one who has come from the Father, full of grace and truth. And these words that may bite and sting at first are also the words that can bring healing. Like the scalpel of a surgeon, your words cut us open and remove sickness and can make us well. Jesus, I pray for everyone at home, especially those who have been through a divorce and are hurting or angry or embarrassed, or any number of emotions, those who long ago tuned out, to give them the grace by the Holy Spirit to embrace your reality, that what you say is not only true, but it's for our good. With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Do the impossible, Jesus. It's not only to embrace your reality, but with humility to confess our own. The offerings that God accepts, those of a contrite heart and a broken spirit. Maybe you're at home right now and you're just crying. Your heart's broken. Lean into it. There's hope on the other side for you. God, I confess that I've not lived up to your reality your standards. Not just in in marriage, but in lots of ways. God, I've blown it. And finally, God, I I ask and encourage you to ask God to renew your reality. He is delighted to pour His Spirit on you. God, would you do it? Would you do it? Help. We need you, Jesus. For 70-year-olds who've been through a divorce 30 years ago, and that wound is still there. For children, you were a child when dad left or mom left. God can still renew your reality too. Jesus, we entrust ourselves to you. Why have this conversation now unless there's a possibility of resurrection? So come, Holy Spirit. We trust you. We believe in you. It's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So we lean into your hands, relax in your presence, and trust that you're doing a good work. In Jesus' name, amen.